there can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program. So please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing or pop on some headphones and that way no one can get offended but you. know that a woman who reports that she's been strangled is something like, in some studies, 800 times more likely to experience death or serious harm in the few weeks after that strangulation. But one of the things that I find really scary and chilling is that we know that um, this domestic violence is really underreported. I find it chilling to think about all the women who haven't left. Coercive control is personalised. It extends through social space as well as over time. And it is gendered in that it relies for its impact on women's vulnerability as women. Rights for Festivals proudly presents the Feminist Writers Festival Sydney 2018. Made possible by the support of Create New South Wales and Writing New South Wales. Pamela Cook and Kel Butler from Rights for Women. This session is Domestic Violence and the Law. My name's Christy Clark and I'm here this afternoon both in my capacity as uh, Deputy Chair of the Feminist Writers' Festival and as a legal academic. Thank you for coming along this afternoon to our session, Domestic Violence and the Law. I do need to highlight that this session will involve the discussion of violence against women, including in the home, and other subjects that could potentially be triggering to some audiences, so please look after yourselves and feel free to step out if you need to at any point. 58 women have been killed violently this year, nine or ten last month alone. And an overwhelming number of these women were were killed by current or former partners. According to our watch, domestic or family violence against women is the single largest driver of homelessness for women in Australia and results in a police call-out on average once every two minutes. One in six Australian women has experienced physical or sexual violence by a current or former partner. One in four Australian women has experienced emotional abuse by a current or former partner. So it's no exaggeration to say that we are experiencing a national crisis in relation to violence against women, or perhaps we're becoming aware of an ongoing crisis. Uh, But it's often difficult to know what to do. Ideally, we could turn to our legal system to protect women from violence and abuse, but the legal system does not have a positive history in this area. So why is this the case and what can we do about it? I hope that today's panel will start to shed some light on the issue and we have three experts on the subject to that end. Uh, But before I introduce them, I want to hand over briefly to Monique Dam, the Advocacy and Prevention Manager at Domestic Violence New South Wales, who'd like to say a few words. Thank you so much, Christy, and to the panel um, for giving me a few minutes to speak. Uh, So my name is Monique and I work at Domestic Violence New South Wales, which is the peak uh, body for specialist domestic and family violence services in New South Wales. A few weeks ago, we launched our joint policy platform together with the New South Wales Women's Alliance uh, with 49 recommendations for law and policy change in the lead up to the New South Wales election. And I've brought copies along um, of a summary of the recommendations um, that I would love if you could take with you to have a look at after the session. What we're asking people to do is um, 
if they uh, want to support the platform, please um, join our call for action. So on our website, safensw.org.au, you can join our call for action. So it's not a petition, it's a call for action because we're calling all New South Wales political parties to make commitments to implement the 49 changes to law and policy so that we can prevent and end sexual, domestic and family violence. And um, those recommendations... Um, spread across six priority areas, including creating cultural change to prevent violence and promote gender equality, to provide immediate and ongoing support for people experiencing violence, to ensure people experiencing violence have a safe home, ensure that people experiencing violence can access justice safely, enable Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples to lead change to end violence against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and children, and for the government to be accountable to specialist workers and the wider community. So we would really appreciate your support. If you can join our call for action, um, write a letter to your local MP. There have already been um, quite a number of letters that members of the community have sent out, and it is making an an impact because we are getting requests from politicians to meet with them. Um, so if you can please spread the word and if you are organising any events for the 16 days um, of activism against gender-based violence, please do get in touch. I'll just be at the back of the room at the end um, if you would be happy for us to come along and promote the campaign there as well. Thank you and I'm really looking forward to the panel of experts. Thanks. Thanks, Monique. Okay, well, I'm delighted to introduce our three experts on domestic violence and the law. Next to me is Professor Heather Douglas, who is a Professor of Law at the University of Queensland and an ARC Future Fellow. Her recent projects include the National Domestic and Family Violence Benchbook and the Australian Feminist Judgments Project. Heather's current work focuses on women's experience of legal engagement in response to domestic and family violence. Could you please welcome Heather? Uh, next to Heather, I have Dr Jane Wagman, a senior lecturer at UTS Law. Jane's research focuses on legal responses to domestic and family violence. In her research, she draws on her background as a legal practitioner, government policy officer in, and in law reform. Jane is currently researching unrepresented parties in family law proceedings involving allegations of family violence, an Anne Rose-funded project, and she's currently a member of the New South Wales Domestic Violence Death Review Committee. Please welcome Jane. And at the end of the panel here, I have Professor Nan Seifert, uh, a Professor of Law and Director of the Legal Intersections Research Centre at the University of Wollongong. Nan researches across gender, race, sexuality and the law, including on domestic violence, refugees who are sexual minorities and laws criminalising female genital cutting. Please welcome Nan. Uh, so I wanted to start off by defining our terms because we're going to try and be slightly academic about the subject. And Nan, I'm wondering if you could give us a brief definition of domestic violence. Can you hear me? Okay, great. Um, so I thought it might be useful to start out with the power and control wheel. This was developed by um, women in Duluth, Minnesota in the US in the 1980s. And it's still, I think... Um, the kind of best representation of what we're talking about in relation to domestic violence or intimate partner violence. 
So you can see the hub of the wheel is power and control, and that's what uh, the women told us um, that the men were, in, in most cases, of course, um, were trying to gain. That was the objective of the violence. So um, you've got power and control, and then the spokes of the wheel using coercion and threats, using intimidation, emotional abuse, um, economic ab abuse, withholding money, um, and all those things are uh, spokes that hold the wheel together. Then the rim of the wheel is important. That's physical and um, sexual violence. But th one of the things that the wheel highlights is that physical and sexual violence may only be used when necessary to um, keep power and control. So the other tactics or the spokes of the wheel um, may be enough a lot of the time to keep power and control. And it may be only when the abuser feels that he's losing power and control that um, physical and sexual violence will be used. So this, so it's important to say um, that this is a, uh, an image and a kind of representation of um, abusive intimate partner violence that resonates with a lot of women, but not all. Some women say, look, you know, it, it's physical and sexual violence all the time. There are no um, periods when that's not happening. Um, and, and others say that, that there are different tactics uh, that are used. Now, also, this um, image has been put out and has been adopted and adapted by um, indigenous women in the U.S., for example, and lots of other places around different kinds of, of abuse. Um, so I think that's important to say. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Thank you. Jane, uh, you often use the term intimate partner violence instead of domestic violence. Is there a particular reason for that? Uh, there are a number of reasons for that. One is, I thought I'd, there are a lot of terms that we use to describe this form of harm. So domestic violence, domestic abuse, family violence, domestic and family violence, violence against women, intimate partner violence, and so on. And in historically, battered women, battered spouse were also terms that were used. Um, and sometimes these terms are used interchangeably, although they have social and political implications, often around whether or not we think gender is important to how we understand these harms. Um, when we look at my jurisdiction, New South Wales, I think Queensland and other places are the same, domestic and family violence is defined really broadly. It includes a broad range of relationships. So caring relationships, children, relatives, kinship relationships, people that live in the same house and so on. And that's important, like they are forms of violence. I focus on intimate partner violence. It's the vast bulk of what we talk about when we talk about domestic violence. I think it's important to be clear and transparent in my work that that's what I'm talking about because other forms of domestic or family violence might be theorised differently and they might require a different response. Thank you. Heather, the other component of our title is the law and how would you define um, the law for the purposes of the discussion? Because many people might assume that we're just talking about, say, women and children's engagement in the magistrate's court with the criminal justice system. Yeah. So I, I think we should define law really broadly. And obviously it would take into account sort of legislation and case law by judges, but also the relationships women have with police and uh, magistrates and lawyers, those who implement and interpret and apply the law. But in terms of areas of law, I think it's really amazing how many areas of law 
women particularly who are engaged who are engaged with the law as a result of domestic violence are involved in often. So they might be involved in the magistrate's court getting a protection order, but they also might be uh, a key witness in a criminal matter. They might they're likely to be in the family court if they've got children. Uh, if they're dealing with immigration, they might be dealing with a domestic violence exception in immigration law. They might be dealing with child protection claims. But there's all sorts of other things that they get drawn into potentially as well uh, through some forms of systems abuse, I think, by partners in some cases. Sometimes they're charged with def defamation and they find themselves going through the higher courts. Uh, sometimes they go through the small claims tribunals as a result of debt claims made by their partners or contract breaches and so on. So it's a diverse range of legal systems that they're engaging with. I think it's also important to think of those other sort of statutory systems like um, victim support uh, compensation schemes and uh, the child support system also as parts of that broader legal system because I think they're key parts of the legal system that women engage with in this context. Jane, if we do start off by focusing on the criminal justice system, could you tell us about some of the key challenges facing women who seek redress, redress or justice in relation to their experience of, say, intimate partner violence? Okay, this is a very large question. And I think um, we could start by saying the criminal law wasn't really designed for the types of harms that women experience. And so that's the start of the challenge. Um, the criminal law is designed around generally responding to physical, visible forms of violence and single discrete incidents. And when we talk to women about their experiences of um, intimate partner violence, it's very different. It's a repeated pattern of behaviour. As Nan explained, it's not necessarily physical violence. There's a whole range of different things that come together that criminal law hasn't necessarily defined as an offence. So partly it's about whether or not women's experiences of violence fit what the criminal law defines as something that's actionable. Thank you. Can I, can I say yeah, some other please points about interject. that? I mean, I think that there are other problems with the criminal law too in relation to process, um, about actually being heard at all, even if you're trying to tell a story about coercive control, but about being heard by police, by magistrates and so on. Um, I think there's also issues about um, the outcome, even if you are successful uh, at being heard. Uh, often women claim that the outcomes really minimise uh, their experience. So a lot of people talk about their partners uh, being charged with a criminal offence and then just receiving a fine as a result. And so feeling like all their partner is doing is paying to hit them or paying to abuse them. So I think there's all sorts of problems procedurally as well as the yeah. big conceptual problems that are at the heart of it at the yeah. same time. So it is, I mean, I guess, and when you look at feminist writings about law, we can talk about what the law is defined as a harm, but it's practice and implementation that's remained the challenge. Mm. Nan, the common law has a history of treating women as the passive objects of property and of defining their familial relationships as a private matter that's beyond the boundaries of law. How does this history continue to influence the way the criminal justice system responds to domestic violence? Mm, so I thought first I'd say something about this idea that um, the private sphere is beyond the reach of law. So it, it was, it's often said that traditionally the law didn't extend into the private realm of the household, for example, which was associated with apparent state non-intervention. So, but I say apparent because that was never really true. 
Um, the state did interfere uh, in the household in relation to child protection matters, for example, in relation to social welfare um, issues so and, and, and other issues as well. So it was more true that the state didn't um, intervene in the household if you were white and middle class, right? Um, but even then, it, it wasn't 100% true. Uh, so it's a choice of the state and it's a choice of the criminal law not to intervene or historically in relation to intimate partner violence or domestic violence. Um, so, and feminist scholars have further suggested that such a claim masks the power left to men in those spheres, right? So the state doesn't intervene then, and the, tr the historical thing is a man's home is his castle. So the, if the state doesn't intervene, then basically it's the head of the household who makes the laws uh, and who's the sovereign, for example, and, and therefore is not accountable um, for those laws. So it, it's a complex issue. Um, it's also been argued that conce conceptualizing private violence as an individual problem that takes place in the, in the private sphere results in a focus on the victim rather than on the perpetrator. Um, and so if you think about private violence or violence that takes place behind closed doors or in the household as opposed to public violence, um, you might think about um, domestic violence in relation to terrorism, for example, right? Now, obviously, there's a lot of issues around terrorism and how the state responds to it, and there's a lot of racialization that goes on there. But if you think about um, the statistics, which you mentioned, so in the last 20 years, six people have died in Australia as a result of terrorism, and three of those were terrorists, um, whereas we have a woman killed every week or more in, in the current year. Um, and the government spends $35 billion on national security and it spends $160 million per year and it spends $160 million on domestic violence. So for women, the risk of being harmed as a result of domestic violence is, is infinitely higher than the risk of being harmed by terrorism, right? And if you think about domestic violence as a woman having her own kind of private terrorist, right, stalking, um, continually sort of uh, paying attention to what she's doing and having opportunities um, for harm, it, it, that's, I think, somewhat of a productive analysis. I'm not saying that explains it all by any means. Um, so that's just the, the public-private part, I guess. Um, I think the broader conception of intimate uh, partner violence also allows us to think about violence beyond that private sphere of the household, which is also important. Um, for example, we know that violence happens in uh, teenage relationships, right? And where the, you know, both the victim and the perpetrator are still living at home with their parents, but not in the same household. And of course, not all um, partners live together anymore, and that doesn't mean that um, the, the relationship is not abusive. So just coming back to the question more generally then, I would say a lot has changed in terms of formal legal equality for women. Um, which means that the law does not differentiate between women and men on its face um, or explicitly, but nevertheless not enough has changed about the culture and society and the way we think about the roles of women and men um, and who's responsible for what and who's credible and who's, who has authority um, and who doesn't and, and the kinds of terms that we use generally for women um, which we can see across a whole lot of spectrums in terms of the um, issues that are occurring today, the Me Too issues and the women in leadership issues and how they get treated. 
Um, and I guess we'll come back to that in some of the next questions. Jane or Heather, is there something you want to add to that? Well, yeah, I, I want, wanted to mention that um, I think that law continues to be really patriarchal. Mm. And um, I think that uh, we see, well, in a, on a practical level, in so many cases, women I've spoken to talk about this sense that men are aligning together. So the male police officer is aligning with the partner. Um, they give examples of things like, um, you know, OK, we'll take him out of the house, but can you just give him a beer for the road? Mm. Kind of, you know, he's a mate mm. and give him a beer and that sort of thing. Um, also, you know, magistrates appear to sort of say, oh, you know, give him a break. You know, women have reported things like that happening. So that male alignment within the legal system, I think we still see it, which is kind of shocking in, mm. you know, the 21st century. And, sorry, yeah, and that I was also going to say... Um, a, with a colleague, Trish Mundy, at the University of Wollongong, I just conducted um, an evaluation of the domestic violence intervention service run by the YWCA in NARA. And so we interviewed a range of clients who were considered high risk, at, at high risk, medium risk or low risk. But what the conversation we were having before this panel was how in a way, shocked I was by how similar those stories were to the stories that I heard 30 years ago when I first started working in this area. Um, and, and I think that's completely, it, all of those things are the same. The, the alignment that you can see, for sure. Oh, there was the story of Victoria. That's, there's, there's, a, there's an ongoing uh, negligence claim about the Victorian police uh, where the police... Uh, Brought was came to the house and then had a chat to the man who was accused of family violence by this woman, and um, they had a chat to him, and then they came back to the woman. And they said, "Look, if you give him money for the train fare, he'll leave you alone." The police are giving her that deal, mm. and she, this is really recent. This is a year ago, so you know there's real issues out there in relation to that. Jane, did you have anything to add on that one? I was just going to say, we have some community attitude surveys. So they started in 1995, 2013 was the most recent one, but one's going to be published at the end of this year. Um, and judges and police and lawyers come from the community. So these community attitudes reflect us too. And they document both progress and negative things taking place. And I think we should really watch some of the things. So for example, in the 2013 one, there were still negative ideas about why do women bring these claims? Well, they bring them to get advantage in family law. So these dominant narratives remain and, in fact, are increasing at the same time that we have a greater understanding of non-physical forms of violence. And so there's an interesting tension in how effective our community education has been to really understand. Thank you. Uh, Nan, you've argued before that our cultural narratives around romantic love work against women in court by either painting a rosy picture of their abusers or somehow undermining the credibility of the women themselves. Can you expand a little on that? Sure. Can we just come back to the slides? Um, because I, I have something on a slide. Okay. So... Um, in that work, I analysed the transcripts of trials where women killed their abusers, often after many long years of enduring horrifying levels of violence and often after many attempts to try to get assistance from the system, either from um, police or from religious leaders or social welfare agencies. At their trials, the women sometimes said that they loved their abusers, as you can see on the slide. 
And often when they said this, the prosecutor who was trying to convict them of the crime would reply by saying something like, well, if you loved him, he must have not been so bad. In other words, if she loved him, he must not have been violent and she must have been lying about, she must be lying about the violence. And therefore, since she's lied about that, she could be lying about other things. So her credibility in general is undermined. Um, or she might be abnormal or crazy. Um, so my experience as an activist also suggested that some activists and feminists were uncomfortable with women who said that they loved their abusers because they wanted them to hate them, right? Um, and so in that work, I look at um, cultural constructions of romantic love. And I argued that the stories of love that these women tell to make sense of their lives draw, draw on discourses of romantic love that are all around us in, in novels, in, um, in the classics, uh, on TV, and on the screen. So we all tell stories about who we are to ourselves and to others, and we draw on the stories out there that are available in telling our own stories. That's a, our kind of cultural construction of identities. Um, so in the article, I consider the uh, selected uh, dominant discourses of romantic love, including Kant's philosophical exposition of romantic love, Shakespeare's Othello and Romeo and Juliet, and examples from popular culture. So, for example, one that everybody might know, Every Breath, the song Every Breath You Take by the police has been, known, has been known among activists as the batterer's song, right? But I think it's heard by the general population as a love song. Um, I think we all are familiar with the, the characterization of this as the stalker song um, or the love song. So the conversion of love and what have been identified as abusive tactics um, in this song becomes a bit clearer and is a reflection of the manner in which popular constructions of love facilitate abusive relationships. So women sometimes describe their abuser, in, in fact, fairly often, um, at the beginning of the relationship as the perfect attentive lover. Women do not fall in love with batterers, but with individuals who often treat them um, with an almost exaggerated respect and attention and can be extraordinarily appealing. Um, this high level of, a, of attention during an early romantic period in a re relationship turns abusive when it shifts to um, from caring to control and when it becomes an obsession with every little step, every step you take and every move you make and the abuser starts wanting to know where the woman was and why it took her so long and normally it only takes her 45 minutes to go grocery shopping and this time it took an hour and 15 minutes. What was she doing? Can she prove what she was doing? Does she have receipts from the other store? Um, so as abusive relationships progress, batterers may demand an accounting of all the woman's actions, sometimes literally every minute of every day. Read as, a, as an obsession with control and masked by discourses of romantic love, these lines from every breath you take have an ominous ring. Um, another tactic of power, of course, and control is using male privilege or what might be called the possessive individualism of patriarchal romance, which is also reflected in the line where he says, you belong to me. So the song, probably written and certainly largely heard as a love song, illustrates the conversion of love and tactics of abuse perpetrated by men on women, usually. It provides an illustration of how love can be constructed consistently with abuse in a relationship. And the, the quotes from the women in the cases, um, uh, if I go back to that, 
I thought with my love, uh, I thought what I could give him my love, anything he wanted would stop the abuse. I thought with my um, love and psychiatric help, he could overcome what he did to me. I, you know, stand by your man through thick and thin um, and hope for the best, really. Thank you. Heather, there's been a significant amount of feminist activism in relation to the legal response to domestic violence and, and other forms. Do you think there's been improvement in the system as a result of the activism? Um, yes, I do. I think there's been a lot of improvements. I think that we've... Uh, done some really amazing things over the last few years. One of the things that we've managed to do is get all of the states and territories to actually communicate with each other so that we recognise protection orders in every state and territory. So if you get a protection order in New South Wales, it's now recognised in Queensland and Northern Territory, etc. So the police in those jurisdictions will respond to those protection orders. I think that is an improvement. Previously, women would have to go to the new police station where they went to and apply again and so on and prove that there was a risk etc. So that's obviously a lot easier and a lot of women do move interstate and over borders and things for getting shelter or finding living with relatives or whatever it might be. So I think that's a really important difference or development. We've also seen rolling out across the country also um, it's, it's increasingly not possible for abusers to directly cross-examine their partners in court and women have reported consistently that that's been an absolutely terrifying experience. So being mediated by an advocate or a lawyer now will be the usual way that that happens. And that is likely to happen in the family court as well. I think that's an important difference. Um, and I think also uh, the development slowly across the country of more and more domestic and family violence courts is important. Where that's starting to help to break down those silos between the different areas of law. And now I have to swap from general to specific to Queensland, where we've made some fabulous inroads as compared to New South Wales, who's a little bit behind, um, which I'm happy to say. Not happy to say, but generally, you know. Um, so recently we introduced uh, decriminalisation of abortion in Queensland, uh, which I think is really important in the context of recognising reproductive coercion as a really big problem in many relationships where, where there's domestic and family violence. And I think decriminalising termination or abortion in Queensland is a really important move uh, in that it'll open up the conversation around these issues and open up the conversations around long-acting reversible con contraceptions and, and the accessibility of abortion as well. I think that's important. Um, we've also just introduced a human rights bill, uh, which I think is an important statement about our view of humanity and, and the rights of, of people generally. So I think that's helpful in this context as well. We've also had quite a few developments in the criminal justice sector. Probably the most, uh, the most important one has been the strangulation offence. And I know there's a lot of debate around whether this should or shouldn't be introduced here in New South Wales and also Victoria and a number of other jurisdictions. Um, but it's certainly one very positive effect about the strangulation offence, and you probably shouldn't need criminal law to do this, but certainly it's had that effect, is it has certainly put strangulation on the agenda in Queensland. Police officers are now routinely um, 
highly skilled now in responding to strangulation and understanding the kinds of health risks associated with strangulation. So I think we now increasingly in Queensland, at least in the domestic violence sector of people dealing with directly dealing with domestic and family violence, uh, know how to respond to strangulation. So we know that it's a, a risky behaviour. The kinds of injuries that come with strangulation are quite broad brush. People often die of strangulation uh, or can die of strangulation days and months after the event, even when there's no apparent injury. So now we do refer women routinely to have a medical checkup if she reports strangulation, for example. Um, and I think that's an important thing. There's also obviously the future risk of death or serious harm. We know that a woman who reports that she's been strangled is something like, in some studies, 800 times more likely to experience death or serious harm in the few weeks after that strangulation. So I think that introduction of that criminal offence has been important as well. They're some of the things I think we've been doing. Can I take you back a moment to reproductive coercion, just uh, to explain a little bit more what you mean by the term? Yeah, sure. So uh, reproductive coercion is essentially uh, attempts by a male abuser usually to uh, control the woman's reproductivity. So that might be things like uh, stopping her from having a termination or forcing her to have a termination, or it might be things like... Uh, pulling off a condom mid-sex when there's been a discussion that there's no pregnancy wanted. Uh, it might be financial abuse. That means that women can't access contraception, can't purchase it. Or there might be a, a refusal to allow the woman to take contraception. I had a, I've interviewed a lot of women over the last few years and one of the women I interviewed uh, was a woman who I called Rosanna and uh, she had about six kids and in the middle they were all bang, bang, bang one after the other but there was a two-year break in the middle and I said to her, what happened? And she said, well, after the third one had been born, the doctor had said to her, do you want to be having all these kids? And she said, no, I don't, but he likes me being pregnant and he won't let me not be pregnant. And the doctor assisted her with some reversible contraception, which she was able to have for a couple of years. So, And she was very happy about that. She, she was, um, that was a really important thing for her that she had that break. So really important thing for us to be recognising throughout the sector. Thank you. I had a bit of a, a follow-up there in relation to the fact that you've argued that a key win for feminist activism can often be outside the courts in terms of the services yeah. that, are, that are available and to women and the kind of self-identification that can occur as a result of contact. Can you yeah. expand a bit on that? Well, I think there's a disproportionate focus on law and legal responses to domestic and family violence. It, it's interesting. I think that we think... I think it's cheap to some extent. You know, you d develop a new offence or you do this or you do that. Um, but the irony is that uh, the focus on criminal justice or, or justice interventions has led to the development of specific advocacy services that work alongside justice interventions. And these justice interventions are often run by feminists. So they sort of sneak in through the cracks. And um, a lot of women will be referred to these services uh, by police as a result of having to get a protection order and they'll be sent to the advocacy service, which is often literally inside the court or next door to the court. And it's often those services that really empower women and really listen to them, uh, listen to what they want and advocate for them about the things they need. So whether that be all of those other things like safe housing and access to financial support, contraception, um, support for their kids, counselling and so on. So, yeah, I think that that's an interesting extra that's happened. And I think still, um, even now, even though some of those services are being taken over by agencies that might not have that feminist uh, view... Or standpoint, I do think that uh, 
many services still are feminist-run services, and so they are the introduction point for many women to that, that new experience of what being a woman can be. Jane, you've, write, you've written about the concept of coercive control, which is sort of a, a, a particular concept in the literature. I'm wondering if you can explain what the concept refers to and why it's such an important issue for the legal system to grasp and I guess for the community to grasp so that it feeds into that. So coercive control is a phrase that we use a lot in recent years, like how, how do we talk about this form of violence and what does it really mean? In recent times, it's very much linked to work by Evan Stark. He wrote a book in 2007 called Coercive Control, How Men Entrap Women in Their Personal Lives. Um, and so it's largely seen as connected to his work, but I must say that it has a much longer history. Um, if you go back to the 1970s, Rebecca and Russell Dobash talked about coercive control. Um, the Duluth wheel that um, Nan showed, power and control, is another version of understanding this um, this concept. So feminists have long talked about domestic violence being much more than physical violence and that it being much more about the mechanisms, the motivations for why violence and abuse is used. And so coercive control enables us to capture those things. So Stark argues very strongly in his book that we're focused too much on violence. And largely this is, I think, because we're focused too much on law and not necessarily on all the other things that we need to focus on. And that we're stalled because we've looked at violence and we have not looked at control, which is the main thing. So when you interview women about their experiences of violence, they will say that the they will often say that the physical violence wasn't the worst thing. It was the emotional and psychological abuse, their loss of liberty, their loss of freedom, their entrapment. Um, actually, the other author is James Patacek. He talks about social entrapment. And all of this work by these people that I mentioned is grounded in women's voices. They were interviewing women. They were working with women. So it comes from the way they talk about it. I, preparing for today, I was thinking, when I was doing my PhD, I remember interviewing women. I just asked them generally about violence they were the ones that defined it as control. Like, it came from them. I didn't, I didn't use the word in my questions. It was the way they talked about it. Um, I actually thought it might be useful to just read a passage from Stark's book because so, it just gives greater dimension to what he means about coercive control. So he says, Coercive control is, an ongo is ongoing and its perpetrators use various means to hurt, humiliate, intimidate, exploit, isolate and dominate their victims. Like hostages, victims of coercive control are frequently deprived of money, food, access to communication or transportation and other survival resources, even as they are cut off from family, friends and other supports. Coercive control is personalised. It extends through social space as well as over time. And it is gendered in that it relies for its impact on women's vulnerability as women due to se sexual inequality. Men deploy coercive control to secure privilege privileges that involve the use of time, control over material resources, access to sex and personal service. Like assaults, coercive control under undermines a victim's physical and psychological integrity but the main means used to establish control is the micro-regulation of everyday behaviours associated with stereotypic fem female roles, such as how women dress, cook, clean, socialise, care for their children or perform sexually. So I think that kind of captures its multi-dimensions. Can I mention too that the omnipresence that Stark talks about too is, is increased exponentially by the, the technology that's available now. Mm -hmm. 
and I'm really worried about smart homes. Um, but also women I spoke to talked about actually getting support from a service to put in CCTV and it was hacked by their partners so they were being watched all day and getting message from their partners. Their kids having GPS devices in their toys, um, you know, apps being put on the kids' phones on contact visits and so then the woman is followed when she's at, whenever she's with her child. This creates that... Omni, you know, develops that omnipresence to an even greater height, I think, since Stark wrote in 2007. Yeah, it does. And, I mean, when you read some of the work on technology facilitators, so it was like, you know, there's this emphasis on women leaving. Why didn't she leave? And technology means that they're never away from it. Um, so 24 hours a day, it's on your social media, it's being tapped into. And so this idea that you could ever potentially escape, I mean, that, that question itself is wrong and incorrectly focused, but technology has really changed what we mean by that. I had a story from one woman in my study and um, she said when uh, she met her partner, he just friended everyone on her Facebook. So she was just completely embedded with him in, you know, so. Actually, the one I was going to ask you was about the, the, t- the camera on the shower. Oh, that was awful. Yeah, so there's another woman who talked about having um, the CCTV and it had been hacked into by her partner and she was coming out of the shower and it just, yeah, her ex-partner, and it, and it the camera moved to watch her coming out. So he's obviously watching her all the time. You mentioned at the beginning the multiplicity of legal systems to some extent that women do deal with um, in, in, this, in this context of particularly when they're leaving partners or, or when they're experiencing domestic violence in the, sort of the child protection system. Yep. Can you elaborate on, on how that can look for, you know, for a single woman within, say, a three-year period? What kind of level of contact we can be seeing in terms of the law and how that really can impact on her life? So I've interviewed 65 women for the study that I'm doing at the moment and I've followed them for three years um, and I'm left at the end with 55 women who've stuck with, stuck with the study and I think 48 of them are still involved in legal processes. So it's long term and especially if there's children. So And hopefully the family court will be completely redesigned after this latest uh, rendition and this won't happen anymore. But uh, if, if women have children, of course, they're totally stuck in this kind of revolving door with the family court and with potentially changes to protection orders over time and so on. I mean, I think that it's interesting when women eventually manage to leave a violent partner, um, that's they may actually set up their lives so they don't have to have contact with him anymore. So they might have their friends helping out with contact visits. They might have a protection order that says no contact. They might have conditions around social media. They might really have cut out the contact. But the one way we still let contact happen is through the legal system. So it's the one way of accessing these women. And many abusers are are pretty good at managing it and they will do things like make endless applications for changes in conditions. Many of you will know about this already in the room but, you know, make many... Every time they make an application for change in conditions, that is likely to get her back to court to defend against that. Or they'll make an application for changes in contact with the children or appeal a decision or... And women are too worried about what they might lose not to go along and defend it. So they're back there doing it. And, you know, maybe he'll sue them for defamation. He'll probably lose, but she has to go and defend it. She has to get legal advice or she has to defend it by herself. And so women can be really trapped in this revolving door of the legal system. It's incredibly common and it's a real problem. 
Can I add something there? I mean, the other problem for women in this system is that these different areas of law define and position her differently. Yeah. And so it's the same woman with the same harm, but in the child protection system, they'll be asking, is she a protective parent? In the protection order system, is she you know, worthy of protection? Has she, does she have grounds? She's a witness in the criminal law, and then in the family law, she's a parent looking to the future. And so it's kind of like the law is itself fragmented within... So we've got a fragmented system across health and all these other things, but even law is not sort of dealing with the harm in a holistic kind of way. And you mentioned, you know, in relation to border control or immigration, that it's a very different test even for... for Yeah. Well, so we have different definitions across all the different areas as well and so they have to fit their experience into all these diverse definitions. Um, Nan... You worked as an advocate and crisis worker, worker in women's refuges in Boston while you were still at law school. Can you tell us a bit about that experience? Sure. I'm just going to tell you one thing, which is the first day I worked there. Um, so I volunteered at a women's refuge in Boston, and because I had taken Spanish um, language at, in, at university... Um, they needed help at the Spanish-speaking refuge. So my first night there, I had this conversation across languages because I told them I really didn't speak Spanish that well. And um, with a woman who had just arrived at the refuge that day, and she told me this story. She was telling me why she arrived at the refuge with absolutely nothing, not even nappies for her kids. She had three children. So she left the abuser with three children and two garbage bags full of nappies and children's clothes and other things, which is often how women leave. Um, it's, it's incredible how, much, how often they use garbage bags. But, but they're taking you know, just what they're leaving on the fly and they're taking what they can shove into the garbage bags in a very few minutes while they're, they've escaped for five minutes the notice of the abuser. So her bu- abuser discovered that she'd left and he came after her with a gun. And she told me how she ran down an alley with him chasing her and had to get herself and the children over the fence at the end of the alley. She managed to escape, but she lost the garbage bags in that process. So here I was, a law student, and I was in complete awe of her in terms of her courage and resourcefulness. And for the entire time I've worked in the area, I continue to be completely awed by the strength and resourcefulness of the women that I meet. But one of the things that I find really scary and chilling is that we know that um, this domestic violence is really underreported. And so after all these years of working in it and meeting all these incredibly um, courageous and resourceful women, uh, I find it chilling to think about all the women who haven't left um, and who haven't been strong enough and courageous enough to leave. And I, I find that really scary because we know that's the case, basically. Afterwards, you helped to establish a pro bono legal service um, within a, a corporate law firm uh, to represent um, survivors of domestic violence. What, what motivated you to initiate the program? Um, so the motivation actually was quite specific. In Massachusetts at the time, feminists had, had lobbied for a law that said women could represent themselves in court to get protection orders or AVOs. Um, and they had lobbied for this on the basis that this would be empowering for women to represent themselves and not to be, um, you know, have the kind of lawyer authority person. But what happened, um, not surprisingly, was firstly that legal aid, the legal aid offices said, oh, good, women can do this themselves. They don't need lawyers, so we're not going to do this work anymore. 
And then secondly, the um, the women would go into court and, and just go into the courthouse to file the papers. And of course, they were um, met by, you know, men in suits and men in all kinds of different uniforms who would tell them that they didn't have a case. So we heard stories in particular about the clerks who are supposed to accept the papers, put a stamp of the date and time on them, and file them. That is their job, nothing else. They would glance at the papers and tell the women that they didn't have a case and that they should leave. So they would make a determination there. In fact, the security guards would tell the women that they didn't have a case. Um, and, and, you know, of course, the women have walked into to a completely foreign and alienating space, um, and had no idea. And we also know that women, after years of abuse, are um, lacking in self-confidence, you know, and it's a very difficult thing to do to confront this. So we started the pro bono program to fill that gap, um, and we had about 25 lawyers at the firm doing it, and we trained them with the stroppiest feminists we knew, um, or I knew, who <laughs> were still working in the area. Um, and then we went in. We went into court, and the first time I went into court, firstly in my you know very expensive suit with my very expensive law firm name on the letterhead, the clerk still tried to tell me that I didn't have a case, um, and they'd heard about this program, and I said, I just said, well, I think that's a matter for the judge to decide, don't you? Because indeed that is the case. <laughs> okay, so. If we have any questions, we, we might go to those and then we'll, we'll come back to, to one last at the end. Thank you so much for your insights. It's just wonderful to hear um, what is happening. But I think domestic violence and the law, I'm, I'm an advocate and a law student at Southern Cross University. Um, and I get calls from time to time and I'm absolutely amazed at the lack of funding available for women to be able to represent themselves in, in and they're being abused by the law. There's abusive process that's occurring. And I have a matter in Queensland at the moment that I can't even get a lawyer to speak to legal aid regarding her appeal for funding. So um, I just think there needs to be some form of shift. Can you see that there could be a shift in relation to funding for women in being able to uh, be represented? Like you said, they're too traumatised. A lot of people are too traumatised to be able to do this. So what do you think could be a possible solution to that? Jane? Well, clearly, I mean, the most basic answer to that is that we need more legal aid funding and it needs to be dedicated not... Well, we need to find a balance between criminal law and other areas of law because obviously the risk of losing your children is just as great as going to prison and yet we've prioritised criminal law for various reasons in legal aid. Um, there have been a number of inquiries. I know the... Um, no, I'm not going to remember their name... Um, the Law Council of Australia did a big justice report where, again, they're talking about the need for like more community legal centres, but actually more representation is, is what's needed. It is a funding issue and it is a funding issue for government. So the thing that, for me, the thing that we can do is just continue to lobby for that need and to demonstrate the poor and unsafe outcomes for women without that. I mean, well, we're starting some uh, a program um, with undergraduate law students. Um, I mean, you know, they're five years in and they, they, they have confidence and um, so we're trying to get them to assist at court in some matters. You know, they're tiny little drops in the ocean, though, for this much bigger problem. Um, 
but can I just add that um, in the States, most law schools have clinical legal um, programs where uh, students can represent people under the supervision of a practicing lawyer who has at least seven years' experience. And I've been pushing, you know, <laughs> trying to get more of that happening here across a number of areas. I think that would be a really good thing. Nan, your song made me think about um, a piece of research that came out in the last uh, couple of weeks called The Man Box by an academic from uh, University of Queensland and some researchers from the um, Jesuit Social S Services in Melbourne. But they had a cohort of a 1,000 young men from 17 to 30 and asked them a series of questions. And if over a little over a third of the responses to those questions were very patriarchal, then they referred to that from another piece of research in Germany, I think, called they were confined in the man box. But one of the pieces of research in that was 37% of that cohort said they needed to know where their wives and girlfriends were at all times. Mm. So, you know, you, you, you think you have some shifts and then all of a sudden, and 42% of them had sexually harassed physically verbally in some ways in the in the in the past month so it leads me about you know like we're talking about violence to women but unless we do something about the perpetrators we're never going to get anywhere and this was the whole aim of this project is what are we doing with young men first offenders for violence that come out of juvenile justice or prison for the first time because that is a really really big issue that we have to address did any of you want to address that I mean, I think that's a real travesty as well about the sort of redirection of funding away from alternatives to prison as well. Um, it's a real issue. And, uh, you know, being more adventurous in our sentencing responses is, is a really important part of that picture as well, I think. Uh, Look, I think the evidence is in about those things. That's the frustration. So you get back to this problem of, of moving and resourcing things. And But, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I think that's really important. I mean, there's some fantastic things happening in the media, I think, about trying to get peer-to-peer uh, -peer sort of pushing on this. There's that great ad, uh, I think it's in Victoria at the moment, but we have some in Queensland, possibly some here in New South Wales as well, where there's a bunch of guys sitting around having coffee. Have you seen that? And uh, that kind of thing is really important as well, that there's this sort of peer uh, responses to inappropriate behaviour and sexist behaviour and that each all of the people involved in that call it out and they support their friends when someone's calling them out, that they're actually supportive about that. I think those kinds of uh, things at the Hour Watch program and so on is really important as well on that level. Um, yeah, cultural change. Oh, thank you very much, all of you. Uh, I, I was involved in uh, under Whitlam and Fraser too, in setting up the refugees program. It was a step, a very new step then, and we had the great privilege of being on the ground floor. And what I hear now is how far you have all advanced, or we as women have advanced, and how we haven't advanced at all, which is pretty depressing mm. from my perspective. When I, what I'd like to ask each of you is if the slate was wiped clean, where would you begin? How would you begin 
to change what we've got. It's a big one. Hmm. Go to everyone on that. There's a great speech from the Queensland Woman of the, Le- of the Year, Anne-Marie Rice, going around at the moment. And uh, she talks about how she's very tired of this adversarialism where it's in lawyers' interests if they get involved in a case to make the case bigger and last longer and be more complicated. For sure. And so getting lawyers with their current training to behave uh, in this space more appropriately, whether we actually even need lawyers, whether we need some kind of new form of advocacy... Uh, you know, I think we really have to shift out of that adversarial model. It doesn't work in this space, at least. So that's what I would say as a start. Yeah. So, so for today, I'm sort of taking the um, cultural and societal position, I think, in relation to some of the work I've done. A- and I think that that's a really crucial aspect too, you know, until we prioritise changing the way we think about women and men and the gendered ways that our society operates and the, you know, the characteristics that we ascribe to women and to men and all of those underlying things. Relying on the law, it, you know, it's like a Band-Aid on a, on a bullet wound after, um, after it happens. It's, it's too late, you know. I mean, obviously, we have to do the law, and we're lawyers, um, and we do that, but, but that alone is never going to change it. So, you know, $35 billion a year, the amount that we spend on national security, why is women's um, safety not an issue of national security that, that deserves that level of attention, you know, and that level? I think maybe with $35 billion we could change a few things. <laughs> so, you know, well, if they I mean, got the experts. But, but it's yeah. about changing the culture in those yeah. ways that you talk about, right? And, and really, we don't even have a model for changing culture, no matter how much money we had. So I think that's... But then one of the things I was going to say also is, you know, what we do have in this society, which is is incredibly powerful media in TV and in films and in all kinds of social media, which we generally use to make a profit, which generally means that we reproduce the status quo or worse, right? (laughs) But those powerful forms of media could be presenting us with alternatives, alternative ways to live, alternative ways to think about these kinds of issues. And a lot more could be put into that. And I suspect if there was funding for that, there would be, you know, creative people much more creative than me who could think of things to do. So the only thing I'd add to that is and to take up the woman woman's comment in front of you is that we might have done more about prevention earlier. We have at a very early stage working about prevention and that's it's understandable because the crisis of violence is so large and so the tertiary response is there. But we're still still trying to work out how do we do early intervention better and having that focus on perpetrators. Um, so it's to do more about that. Really. Is that part... Sorry. I, I, I'm just wondering actually from all of you, but, but you both mentioned it previously. Is part of the focusing on prevention, the difficulty is because we are focused so much on the law, which is inherently unpreventative. So it, we need to decentre it in order to really prioritise prevention. Um, I mean, I guess it's it's hard it's hard for me to answer that question because I am a lawyer, and so I'm, and I've been at the tertiary end, and so this is where the focus of my work has been. But I also know that most women don't turn to law. So what is it? one in ten or something turn to law, although family law is probably different. Um, there is 
a lot that we can do about law, but prevention sits... The, the bulk of the population is outside that scope. I mean, there's something we could do, which is a really small thing, but an important thing, and Anne Rose has done research on this, um, is that in terms of social security, for example, we should get rid of that idea of family social security and individuals should have their own social security because this is something that is a real problem in, in uh, relationships and um, all sorts of issues flow from that. Yeah, yeah, which is a real issue. Um, that would be a radical shift, um, but I think it would be a good one. That costs money. <laughs> Sorry, we had another question. Yes, mine's potentially a little bit simpler than the last one. <laughs> um, are Australian jurisdictions ready for a coercive control uh, legal approach to domestic and family violence? Okay, I can start on that. So, um, England and Wales have passed a law of coercive, coerce, what is it, coercive control as an offence? And Scotland has one of domestic abuse. Um, Tasmania? We, oh, Tasmania has offences of economic abuse and emotional abuse, but basically almost not used over a 10-year period. Um, so I think there's issues... For me, there's an issues around practice and implementation. These are the challenges for law. And that I think as practitioners, whether you're a lawyer or a police officer or a judge, coercive control should sit in how I respond to any offence as an individual offence, whatever, like knowing that it's part of a larger whole. Um, I'm interested to watch those other jurisdictions to see what happens, but the law is so incident-based that I have concerns that they will return to incidents even as they try to capture a pattern, um, that I'm not sure it will achieve its aims. I'm really interested to see, and it is, it is inventive and it's innovative, um, but law is quite a powerful discipline. Um, I mean, we do already recognise coercive control in the protection order legislation and we already recognise it in the family law. And I think it would be very easy to sit, shift to recognition of coercive control as the definition of domestic violence in the immigration exception legislation without any problem at all. And I think we could recognise coercive control in the social security system when we're trying to chase women for back pay and so on. <laughs> we should be recognising coercive control there. So I think there's a whole lot of areas of law where it's already recognised and it's still and it could happen very easily. But I think focusing on getting new offences, I, I don't know. I just don't know that we that's the answer to a lot of this, actually. So Sandra Walklade and others, they wrote an article about this and they basically said, is more law the answer? Um, do we do the law we have better, um, which might be actually more transformative for people than adding something else to that layer? We have a crime too of torture already in Queensland, which um, is being implemented and it's... Uh, it's ongoing um, psychological or physical abuse. So it actually is a really similar crime to coercive control, but it has to be serious harm that's caused, whether it's serious emotional harm or, or serious physical harm. And that has been used in a lot of cases involving domestic and family violence. Um, but it doesn't pick up those kind of, um, you know, everyday ongoing um, sort of emotional uh, abuse that many people experience. And I guess the other concern with coercive control is that it's defined in terms of gender. Like Stark's work is very gendered in how he articulates it. There are questions about whether law can see that because some of the things that are coercive control, other people might interpret as normal ways in which the household operates. Um, so can we actually see it and recognise it may be an issue? 
if it's defined in a gender-neutral fashion, which is the way in which law generally does things, there's risks, unintended consequences for women. Um, and we need to be careful about women being caught up responding in their, to their own victimisation as an offender. Um, I'm part of a group and they've just sent me a little bit of a, f a Facebook message and um, I do more the DV, a little bit of family law support. Um, one of the big things that I think is coming out from the group that, that, that I'm involved in and we're involved in the Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne jurisdictions is that we believe that there's a misunderstanding and, and a misappropriation of some of the orders made forcing women and children to be with perpetrators of violence and that being able to address that as a contravention or issues further down the track is very poorly managed or they're in, in unable to manage it because one, there's no funding or two, they don't have the strength to be able to do it. I think that um, our family court system, from what I'm seeing, is is can be very poor and Jess Hill has identified that in her monthly report and her background briefing. Um, can you see a, a change with this, with this, you know, throwing up of the cards and, and re-evolution of the family court, a move away from the adversarial system which I think actually destroys women who can't stand up for themselves um, into something that will be a little bit more accessible and a little bit more um, justice in relation to the management of outcomes for children and women? Who wants to go first? Oh, I can say I hope so. I don't, I, don't, I don't really have a clear idea of what the model might be. There are some experiments going on at the moment around... Um, there are some experiments going on around a tribunal. Do you know about that, perhaps, uh, the, in the... The parenting management? Yeah, the parenting management hearing. Um, I mean, I think the family, family law is a, a key area that the adversarial system doesn't work for. No-one wins. You know, your relationships split up, that you're making some decision about property and financial matters and children. So it's not, it's not an area where the adversarial system fits well. Um, it can be a protective mechanism for some people as well. So we have to be careful about how much we push lawyers out of the room because lawyers do a very good job in protecting women at times in those environments. So it's kind of, there's a bit of tension about how we do it. I'm really interested in looking at what the Law Reform Commission does in its inquiry work. I don't know. I mean, lawyers, the women I've spoken to, uh, lawyers charge a lot of money. I mean, if they're getting legal aid, they're very lucky, but a lot of women don't get legal aid and they're paying private lawyers. And they're not really paying private lawyers. They're just promising to give them a whole pile of money when they get the property settlement, maybe leaving them with $50,000 to go off and pay rent for the next year. I think we actually try to have to try to work out how to get private lawyers or out of the system, actually, the family court system. Somehow, I know that's an absolute apocryphal idea and, and no, I, I wouldn't I say that in certain contexts, but I really think it's a real problem that it's a, it's a waste of everyone's money. I guess I should qualify. Like, I've used lawyers as though they're a homogenous group. Yeah. Um, I'm talking about good, good quality <laughs> lawyers that have a good understanding of family violence because sometimes they don't present the evidence. Like, it's not, it's not a sufficient way in which you've presented your case. And so we do have to... I don't know, delve deeper into what's good practice and work out how lawyers can do that better. Yeah. Mm. Nan, you had something there. Uh, yes, I was just going to, to add to that. I did a study on um, lawyers in New Zealand uh, a while ago now, as you know, 
And and what that study found was that lawyers tended to do the same things that that society did in general and that the justice system did, such as minimize and trivialize the violence and not believe their clients um, in a system where they are actually paid to advocate for the interests of their clients. So I think that's a huge issue. But on the other side, we also know there's a lot of research that's been done around mediation um, and that unless you have very specially trained mediators, for example, they do the same things. They also embody societal biases. Um, and whoever has the most power going into uh, a mediation tends to come out with the most out of it. And of course, in this situation, that's the abuser. So it's complicated. I have to say, too, that the re one, we pushed really hard for the Domestic Violence Bench Book to go open access online. And part of the reason we did that was so that people like you and other lawyers appearing in the courts and unrepresented people could take it up to magistrates and judges and really push them on these issues. Um, but that was that was there was reluctance about allowing that to happen. So there is a responsibility, I guess, on on lawyers to to take it up to magistrates to push them to think differently. I, I appreciate it's a it's a long battle. Can you briefly expand on the domestic violence bench book, just in terms of what it is? It's basically a collection of information um, around uh, issues related to domestic and family violence that judges and magistrates might have to deal with in their daily practice. It also has a case database with summaries of all of the cases that, uh, in relation to domestic and family violence. So that, And the idea was that if a magistrate searches or a judge searches for a particular issue, they'll actually get all of the resources from across the state so that hopefully this would nudge people to work more towards a consistent sort of response to domestic and family violence and a best practice response. That was the plan. But slowly, slowly. Thank you. Um, we have time for one last question. Hi. Um, yeah, I completely second those um, calls for cutting the lawyers out of the system. And I should say, I'm, I'm a lawyer and I do think, like particularly in family law, that they are a big part of the problem. I mean, when by the time I see clients, they've already expended all their money and they're going to be self-represented at the hearing. And uh, it's, a, it's a real problem. And sometimes they've got then a claim as well against the lawyer. <laughs> as well as the perpetrator because the family law matters that are going to hearing it generally is a context of domestic violence. But the original comment I also wanted to make was something in respect to what Jane's saying about um, is introducing further offences a solution? And I'd say, um, I'd ask whether you're all concerned about the increasing use of um, provisions that have been set up for the protection of women against women. Um, so I can see when I the controlling coercing stuff used against women and in fact I think men are so adept at using the legal system to perpetuate abuse that I think there's more likelihood of that being used against women so that would make me shy off further offences not that, you know in theory it sounds great but in practice um, it will be used against women and do you think perhaps there might be actually a need to have degendered legislation? Um, no, that what we have currently is degendered legislation, but perhaps we need to really be calling for legislation, which is enacting the international human rights provisions and specifically for the protection of women and children, and that the, the legislation needs to be actually drafted in that manner. Um, 
which goes against the flow of the equality well, no, narrative. Some, some states do have that. Some states do have, although I think it's more based on history of sort of chivalry rather than equality, but some states do have um, sentencing, for example, where it's a higher sentence if you harm a woman or a child. That, so there, there are I those think it's sexism, but maybe there's a time for yeah, it to return well, to chivalry. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to pull my hair out as it's to interesting, what, isn't it? what the way yeah. forward is when equality yeah. is l- delivering such terrible results yeah. in criminal law and in the family law context. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So two things. One that's on that thing. I mean, looking at the protection order legislation in New South Wales, there is a statement in that legislation that says Parliament recognises that women and children are the vast majority of victims. And so even though the law itself remains gender neutral, we have a recognition statement that I actually think is quite significant. Um, But you're right, we do need to be careful what we wish for when we engage with criminal law. And most jurisdictions have seen an increase in women being charged with a criminal offence or have a protection order against them in Australia there's been, and been lots of things in the US, often because they've brought in mandatory or pro-arrest policing policies which remove the police's discretion. So we complained a lot that the police were not doing their job and they had too much discretion, so let's take it away. And in the end, we saw a formal equality approach. Oh, well, she hit him too or, or she threw the object and she broke the property. And they can divide up the incidents. So criminal law makes us divide it up and so then they can lay a charge. And so this is a problem if those professionals don't have a gendered understanding. So we see primary aggressor policies come in to say, well, you need to find out who is, who is the person who's in fear, who was acting in self-defence and so on. That should add some nuance, although some commentators suggest that maybe the police aren't well equipped to have that kind of nuance. Most of the research around women offenders say that they have responded, so not necessarily self-defence, but responded in the context of their own victimisation. Do either of you have anything to add on that one? Well, just also uh, the problem with criminal law is um, the most vulnerable people get caught up in criminal law and the work we've done looking at breaches of protection orders uh, shows that in particular, Aboriginal people, but also Aboriginal women are getting charged with breaches of protection orders and much more likely to go to jail as a result. So uh, the study that we did in Queensland on breaches of protection orders showed that uh, 60% of women who were in custody um, or had been charged and convicted of breaches of protection orders were Aboriginal women. So terrible over-representation in particular groups too. We had a discussion in our first session this morning um, around the, the fact that the state violence against Indigenous women intersects in a terrible way with this issue and that often when, when Indigenous women do make use of the law, it ends up in resulting in their incarceration often for, say, unpaid fines or things like that, particularly in the WA situations, yeah. I want to move to our final question to try to end on a bit of a hopeful note. And I just wondered if each of you could share some advice as to what all of us can do as individuals to change social and legal attitudes towards domestic violence in Australia. And, and Jane, I was going to start with you on that. Um, okay, I was going to. I thought I might have two responses, so a professional one and a personal one. Um, so a professional one is like to really continue to focus on practice. Like I really think that we should challenge practice. So when we know that a police officer or a lawyer has done the wrong thing, then we should challenge them. Like so, if the police officer turns around and says, "Oh well, it's her word against his," that's the way most criminal offences are: one word against the other. And so, getting them to, to you know find the evidence, be forensic about what they're doing, and so that's sort of a. And also in my work in um, 
I tend to write about practice, so I'm interested in the disjuncture between what the law is as written and how women experience it in court, which is what Heather's most recent study has also done. And then on a personal level, I have sons, and <laughs> so now I'll cry. <laughs> and I feel responsible to how I bring them up. <laughs> Me too. Heather or Nan? Um, so I just focused on two general things. Um, if, and I think one really important thing, actually, that, that we often still don't do is if you see a woman with a bruise or a black eye, ask her how she got it. So by not, people think that, that the woman's going to be embarrassed or not want to tell you. You're just asking what happened, as you would, you know, with any kind of injury. Um, and if you don't ask you're invisibilizing it and you're, you're colluding really in, a, in pretending that it didn't happen, which is what he wants, which is what the abuser wants. So I think women, women who have been in that situation, they often say, and nobody ever asked me what happened. Uh, and so then you, if, if you can't ask that first question, then you can't be there for them, right? And she might lie to you, which is fine. Um, but by not asking, if she does lie, you can say, you know, if there's anything you want to tell me anytime, I'm here. Just leave the conversation open-ended. And then I think the other thing is, um, is to speak up about it so, and call out the violence. Um, and if someone tells you about violence, um, don't tell them, you know, you made your bed, you lie in it. Um, and if you think you see in, in someone's relationship emotional abuse or the other kinds of abuse, but you haven't seen actual physical violence, you know, I often say to someone, well, you know, I know you're the expert on your relationship and you're the one who knows him better, but from what I've seen, this looks to me like emotional abuse. And I work in the area and I need to, to call it out. I can't let this go by. So, I th and then the other thing, of course, is witnessing um, around the police and things. You know, we all have cameras now, and that's, you can kind of direct their surveillance back at them um, and just stand and watch what's going on. Don't walk away if the police come to, to a neighbor's house. Stand and watch what the police are doing. Take pictures of them. They're very aware of this sort of thing these days. Heather? That's kind of what I was going to say. But, <laughs> but, but I, I think I, I really love um, Sarah Ahmad's point about being a feminist killjoy. And I think that we should all work on being feminist killjoys. And um, I think we should get into this, and I would interpret that in this context as this notion of kind of habitually denouncing and supporting others who are habitually denouncing behaviours uh, that reflect this notion of co coercive control wherever they may be whether they're on twitter or in the classroom or at work or at home or wherever you see them i think that's really important but on a practical level and we're in new south wales i would say get involved in the activism around decriminalizing abortion thank you okay so Thank you so much for such a, a fabulous conversation. We could, of course, just continue and continue, but we're, we're at the end of our time. I want to extend a huge thanks to all our speakers, but also to our incredible team of volunteers in the lead-up to the festival and um, on the ground, as you would have seen. Um, thank you also to our generous partner, the UTS Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion, and to Jenna Price. And I'd like to thank all of you for being part of our festival. And uh, please feel free to continue the conversation on social media. And now please join me in giving a really warm thanks to our speakers. Thank you.
This is a recording from the Feminist Writers Festival 2018, Sydney. We'd like to acknowledge that the festival was held on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd also like to thank our partner, the UTS Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion. Enjoy the podcast and connect with us on social media or via the FWF website, feministwritersfestival.com. If you enjoyed this presentation of Rights for Festivals, please jump onto the Rights for Women website, www.rightsforwomen.com, to see what else we have on offer. There's Mudgee, there's the National Young Writers Festival, we have Scone coming up, and many, many, many more sessions of the Feminist Writers Festival Sydney yet to come. So jump on onto our website and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting writing festivals. They're a really important part of our writing, reading and living community.